Okay, this morning we want to turn our Bibles to Jude. And I'm continuing uh, at the end of the book, not quite yet finished, but at the end, and we are looking at verses 22 and 23. Just to bring you up to where I was and where I'm going today, the Lord, this Lord's Day, we're still given further encouragement how to be strong in the faith in the midst of uh, aberrant apostasy, the wind of teaching all over the place, uh, coming at us from all directions. And we're giving four points of instruction for discernment and for survival in the midst of this confusion. And of course, we have, exa- we have examined three so far of the four points of instruction in order to remain strong in the faith. And the first one was we are to recall the words of apostolic teaching in verse 13, uh, chapter 1, of course, verse 17 through 19. It says in verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that must always be first. Uh, and then we must always go back to Scripture, run everything through the grid of Scripture while accurately handling the Word of God. And why do we do that? I've been saying so we ourselves don't drift away from the truth. Second thing in verse 20 and 21, we're to remain in the love of God. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. That means stay in the love of God. You're already there. If you're a believer, you need to stay there. And if you stay there, you won't drift. And, of course, the very uh, term of endearment, but you, beloved, in verse 20, really does underscore, and I'm saying this every time, the difference between those who are false teachers and those who are real believers, those who are opposed to truth and those who endanger the community uh, with their aberrant truth, And then, of course, those who seek God and want to obey him and those who say they seek God but don't obey him. So there is a huge difference between those two groups. And that difference carries with it a significant responsibility for us who are believers. And that threefold responsibility really was found in verse 20 and verse 21 that we are to continue to build ourselves in our most holy faith. Secondly, we are to pray, that's communion with the Lord, praying in the Holy Spirit, and then we are to continue to wait, uh, that is the looking forward to receiving our Lord's mercy at his return. That's what we're waiting anxiously for. And why do we do all these, those things? In order to keep ourselves from drifting. Those are the things that are put in place for us for our sanctification, for our perseverance. And while we are building ourselves up with the word of God, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to return, we are all called to do something, right? We're called here to do something. And what are we called to do? We're called to do the primary task of the church. And the primary task of the church is evangelism, taking the gospel to those who have not yet believed taking the gospel to the world. So we are waiting for Christ to bring the full harvest of souls, and God is using the church to bring in that harvest. So if we keep ourselves in the love of God, we will develop a sense of responsibility, urgency, and passion for lost souls. 
people all around us everywhere we go. Never heard the gospel. In New Jersey, you can talk to 20 people in 20 different groups, and no one heard the gospel yet. That's amazing to me. This is like, this is evangelistic territory right here in our state. Uh, there's, no, there's not much cultural Christianity, Christianity of none in New Jersey, uh, but that gives us opportunities to say, hey, mo- the possibility of me sharing the gospel with somebody that never heard the gospel is the percentage is very, very high. So how are we to respond to then false teachers and those who follow them? Are we to fight with them, as I said already? Are we to condemn them? Are we to hate them? Are we to ignore them? Well, the Bible actually tells us that we're to take the posture of being a rescuer. We are not their judge. We are not their creator. We don't have our own authority. We don't even have our own message. God's given us the message. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are sojourners. We are salt of and light in the midst of a wicked and a perverse generation to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in darkness. So we are rescuers. Like I mentioned last week, we're like the QRF force in the military, the quick reactionary force, and they're comprised of highly skilled soldiers who are called in when soldiers or a unit of soldiers or personnel are in some kind of trouble, that they need to be extracted quickly. So they come to rescue them. So in a very similar way, that's what we're to do. We are to rescue those who have come under the influence of false teaching because that is really a serious matter. They may not know they're in danger, but we know they're in danger, and so therefore we need to go rescue them, and we need to, when we bump into them, be able to identify them and then be able to give them what they need. So as rescuers, we are to discern those who are charged, we're charged to rescue because each of the three groups that are mentioned in our passage this morning are in different states of intensity or danger. So caution must be taken by those who are going to rescue and give the gospel lest we find ourselves in danger also. So there's always that going on. So we're the Recall the words of apostolic teaching. We are to remain in the love of God. And then we came to the threefold responsibility we have towards others. And this third one is that of rescuing the doubting and the duped and the wandering. So that's where I was last week. And in Considering that, the first group was those who are doubting. Look at what it says in verse number 22. Have mercy on some who are doubting. All right? So these, this group of, of people, they most likely are believers, but they have sincere doubts. And I mentioned that last time. Uh, and those doubts are really something. There's an argument going on inside of, inside of their mind. They have inner conflict, so they're doubting. They, they're, they're not sure about what is true and what is not true. They're not sure about some things the Bible says. And so when it comes to different points of theology, uh, it, 
it's difficult sometimes. The Bible's a big book. It takes study to figure it out, and there's many difficult parts to it, but the Bible is written so it, we can get a clarity on what God really wants for us, especially how to have a relationship with God. And for sure, people are going to struggle with different points. They are going to struggle with difficult points of theology, and often the struggle comes because they were introduced by false teaching, and they have false thinking that caused that, and so therefore we who are growing and maturing in the, in the Lord are to come alongside of them and help them out. So how are we Christians to respond to those who have inner conflict and not sure what is right? We are to have here, it says, mercy. To show mercy by moving toward them in their need and by coming alongside them with the scriptures to convince them what the Bible says about the struggle that they are having with the hope that the word of God will make clear to them their situation and and give them understanding. So the person's doubts are dispelled and they are brought in line with the truth and set free because the truth will set you free. So this first group uh, of sincere doubters is rescued from fence straddling by compassionate persons who are remaining in the love of God, who are continuing to build upon the word of God, who are continuing to commune with God in prayer, and who are continuing to expect the mercy of Jesus Christ in providing full redemption. So using the word of the Lord to dispel doubts, that's the first responsibility. The second responsibility is the second group is this endangered, naive professor, they needed to be rescued from their wandering from the truth because they were being led by false teachers and their doctrine. So this second responsibility found in verse number 23, it says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Now, of course, I've covered this already, so I'm just going through it quickly until I get to the one I'm looking at today. So this group has already gotten involved with uh, the lifestyle of and practices of false teachers. Uh, and so they have been introduced to the pride and the godlessness and the, their lusts, lustful imagination and their reliance on dreams and not the word of God and other sources. So here in our text, judgment actually refers to final judgment. Snatching them out of the fire, you are really snatching them uh, people that are tottering at the edge of hell, that the final judgment will catch them unprepared. So the approach to the rescue is to help them not to go astray. So this second group, this endangered, naive professor, needs to be rescued from the error of the way by a compassionate, spiritually-minded, biblically knowledgeable person who knows how to handle Scripture and use Scripture correctly to rescue them from wandering from the truth and or a profession short of saving faith. They may believe they're saved, but they don't know they're saved. And so they're tottering on the edge of hell because that's a dangerous place to be, to not know you're saved. You don't want to be caught 
unprepared for final judgment because already Jude has put it before us, God will judge. He will judge godlessness. He will judge unholy lives. He will judge unsaved people. He will do that. So today, the third and final group in our passage is the confirmed practicing sinner. Needed, this, this group needed to be carefully rescued from their enslaving sin. Now, this person, because the way Jude writes about them uh, in our passage here, verse 23, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by, by the flesh. That is giving a picture of an unsaved person who's been caught under teaching which most likely they think they're all right. And they just go on, go on with that thought. So th- in this third activity of responsibility is for the church to go to those who have polluted garments, showing gospel mercy, but mixed with fear. This is fear in the rescuer. The rescuer, why? Because this is a dangerous situation. Now, there's still hope for these individuals. As long as they are alive and have red blood running through their veins, the rescuer is to show mercy while maintaining a sober understanding of the reality of God's judgment and the power of sin. This group is already caught up in the sins of the false teachers like sensuality and immorality and greed and self-centeredness and idolatry, and they think they're doing fine because they're getting everything the flesh wants. And because that's the the false teacher says, God wants you to be happy. Be happy by doing anything you desire to do. And that's not true. So what is the rescuer to do? Well, in Scripture... It lays out for us the approach to this group. It says, some, and on some, have mercy and then with fear. Let me just back that up a little bit and unpack that because the rescuer and his mercy, in other words. The rescuer is to have mercy. But the question is, what is mercy? That's the question. We have to understand what that is so we can approach them properly. Now, the merciful rescuer sees the danger clearly and then moves with mercy towards the person who's caught in sin. Now, why is that? Because he himself is wretched. And he shows mercy because Christ has shown mercy to him. In other words... That was me. That was me heading for hell. So further, the mercy the scripture is communicating has the ability to get right inside the other person's skin until the one showing mercy sees, thinks, and feels what that miserable and helpless person is experiencing even though they don't maybe know they're miserable and helpless. 
And the only one who could show that kind of mercy is those who have themselves understood what it means to be miserable without Christ and helpless to save yourself. See, so they understand, they have good theology, they have good doctrine. But mercy has to do with something else. It goes along with that, it has to do with your heart. It has to do with how you view people. And how you view people who are steeped in sin. So the the merciful rescuer views people differently. And the Christian no longer sees people the way they used to see them. Now with the Spirit of God in them and the Word of God transforming them, you see them now with Christian eyes. How do you see them? You see them as people to be pitied. You see them as people being governed by the God of this world. You see them as slaves of sin and Satan. You see them as blind without spiritual understanding, and you see them as dead and trespasses and sin. Now, you see them through the lens of Scripture. That's the only way we can possibly have mercy on people because we understand those things ourselves. That was us. That was us. And only those who have received salvation, i.e. mercy, can be truly merciful. Jesus says in the Beatitudes... We are to be merciful and compassionate, especially to those who are in misery and to those who cannot help themselves, especially spiritually. So the Christian views the sinner not with animosity, not with hatred, but with helpful compassion. Doing what we can to relieve and restore that person from the consequences of sin that has enslaved them, and they don't know they're enslaved. That's our condition. That's the condition of humanity. If we don't get that, then we really cannot evangelize properly. Now, I want you to take your Bibles, and let's look at a good example in Scripture, Luke chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Here's the example of how a merciful person views people. And it's found in the Gospel of Luke, as I said, chapter 10, verse number 30 to 37. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. People, you've been around, you've heard this, you've read this in the Bible, but I want to look at it, kind of like put a magnifying glass on it and look at it and see what's going on here. Because Jesus is teaching a very strong and powerful lesson here. In Luke chapter 10, verse number 30, it says, Jesus replied... And said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. In verse 31 of Luke chapter 10, it says, and by chance, a certain priest was going down on the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, of course, a priest is connected to the religious system of the day, right? Who was supposed to be the person who would help. All right, now let's go on. In verse number 32, and likewise, a Levite. Now, we can say this, a Levite's getting a little closer to the presence of God in his duties. 
in going into the temple, the Holy of Holies, and the job that they did there close to God. Also saw when he came to the place, it says, and saw him passing by on the other side. And then notice verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, a certain Samaritan, now let me explain something about a Samaritan in Scripture. A Samaritan knew what it meant to be hated and abused because of how they were viewed by the Jews as half-breeds. They were usually intermarried with the Gentiles, and so they were not full Jews, and so they were considered by the Jews who were children of Abraham to be unclean. So Gentiles and Samaritans were actually hated because they were taught to be the enemies of God. So the Samaritan, in verse number 33, it says, but a a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came up upon him, and when he saw him, now you notice three times they saw, look what it says, but he felt compassion. Verse 34, and came to him, and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him, verse 35. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay. All right, now here's here's the parable. And the parable is we see that this Samaritan, this outcast, had something going on in his heart. He saw them exactly where they were, and he had compassion. And you know what biblical compassion does? It moves your will to do something. That's exactly what he did. He gave what he had, he's on a journey. Right? Whatever he had, he had with them. And he was able to do what he could. And then notice verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? That was the question Jesus had. And verse 37, and he said, and he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. See, that's what compassion is. Compassion is somebody who sees just what's going on. And all these three saw him, but only to the Samaritan, who really is the illustration of the meaning of mercy, saw properly, estimated the situation, and immediately responded. The Jews of that day elevated animosity of the wicked to the rank of virtue. They were in the wrong. So when we encounter proud religionists, vile blasphemers, selfish pleasure seekers, misguided youths, and other lost individuals, because the list can go on, remember, Jesus was a friend of sinners. So we are to react with them with hands of mercy. But there's a warning. Back 
to Jude, here's the warning. This group of people that we're talking about, be cautious. Be cautious because they are deep in sin. And they do not see what you see. So be very careful. Now look, let's go back to Jude chapter 1 verse 23 and notice we see now the rescuer's mercy mixed with fear. And on some have mercy with fear. Why do we have fear? Because of the, the depth in which they are involved with their sin. And what are we to fear? The rescuers to fear the power of sin, which is really under the judgment of God. And the picture Jude gives us is to visualize their clothing as stained by the corrupted flesh. In other words, soiled, dirty clothing equals sin. So the Christian rescuer is to fear the polluting nature of sin because sin is powerful. It is like working close to fire. If one gets too close, the possibility of being singed or burnt is a reality and could lead to causing bodily harm and even death if you get too close. Now, I was thinking, you know, one of the most difficult schools I went to when I was in the military was firefighting school. The difficulty was not in the information learned. The difficulty lied in the fear factor. Getting up close to an aircraft burning with jet fuel. Even with all the firefighting equipment that you had on, you were still able to feel the intensity of the heat And the roaring of the flames against your body. And it was frightening. I could not wait to get done with that school. So, in other words, you have a healthy respect for fire. Fire can be used for good. It can be used for bad things. So if anyone should fear sin, it should be the biblical Christian. Because the Christian knows that sin has a deceitful power to it a seductive nature to it. It could pull you in when you don't even realize it. So those trying to help others out of their sin could get themselves caught by the sharp fish hook hidden below the surface, and they can get hooked by the very sin they're trying to rescue someone else from. And we know, what does the Scripture say about sin? It says the deeds of the flesh are evident. We all know it because scriptures like Galatians 5, it says which are immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and drunkenness and carousing. And these things, things like these things of which I forewarned you and as I have forewarned you. And here's the fearful part of it for not only the rescuer but those being rescued that if you practice such things if that's the manner of your life if that's the habit of your life you will not enter the kingdom of God so I'm afraid for their soul because of their lostness see the fear of where sin will exclude you from 
if not taken care of by Jesus Christ. It will exclude you from the kingdom of God. So what we must be careful when being around people with bad morals, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals, right? We can't forget Scripture at the point of temptation, at the point when you feel the pull of temptation. You're thinking in your mind of going and thinking, you start thinking about this sin, and it starts to pull you, and everything else is jettisoned from your mind. But this temptation, that is powerful. And here is your, you're a believer. You know the word of God. And yet the, it's still got a pull on us, right? What do we do then? What do we do then? See, that's the warning here. That we cannot forget when we're being around people with bad morals. We can't forget the scripture at this point, which says in Galatians 5.24, Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its what? With its passions and its desires. And that's what temptation is. It inflames your passions to do the opposite of what the Spirit of God wants you to do. That's what it does. And when it does that, it brings you to the place which is very dangerous. So if you sense you are being affected, and if you see that the other person who is in their sin is starting to rub off on you, their mannerisms, their habits, their language, their desires, then leave their presence. Get out of there and get somebody else to take on the task because you don't want to get pulled into it. What does it say in Scripture? The one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. The flesh is still here. It's still there, but usually the voice of the flesh, once you grow in Christ, is not so loud as it used to be because the Spirit of God's voice is louder than that voice. But you still have a rebel there. You still have someone inside of you saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to obey God. I had a conversation with a police officer several years ago who told me of a fellow officer who was assigned to the sexual perversion unit. He went undercover for a significant amount of time and ended up getting pulled into the perverted lifestyle. He ended up leaving the police force and becoming a transvestite. And you say, well, that sounds awful weird, but I tell you what, when you're embedded in the midst of sin all around you and you're not strong enough to handle that in the middle of a perverse and quick, wicked generation, it's going to get you. It's going to get you. That just, that just tells us, too, that we need to fear sin. As a believer, we should have a higher level of sin than uh, fear of sin than we ever had before because it will pull us in. So don't be deceived by the power of sin. Christians should always be on guard and maintain a healthy fear of sin, just like we have a healthy fear of fire. We have a certain amount of respect for fire. 
We know how close to get. We know how to deal with it. We know the things that can cause very bad damage. So that's the first thing we fear. But the second thing we fear from our text here is that some have, and some have mercy with fear, is the judgment of God, which Jude has already been talking about. Often those who are endeavoring to rescue either think that they are safe or use Scripture in a twisted way to justify their lifestyle, and that's what people do. It's like people who say, I prayed about it. Really what they're meaning is that uh, they're justifying their selfish motives with prayer. I know we even pray about things, but James warns us that we must be very careful when we are praying that we're not praying based on our own lustful desires, but God's will. So we are to pray with wisdom. We are to pray considering others. We are to pray asking for things that are honoring to the Lord and not just justify our behavior or our thinking because we said we prayed about it. So the biblical Christian should be very much aware that not all people view God through the lens of Scripture. Most haven't a clue. It is disastrous to think that when a person is talking about God, that they all mean the same thing, or they all are speaking of the same God. When sinners speak of God, they're usually, they usually refer to one who has committed himself to honoring the sovereign will of man. At any cost to, to himself, that's, of course, idolatry. Idolatry is the sinner has formulated a God in their own thinking. And when we speak of, uh, when the Bible speaks about God, it means the one who is sovereign in creation, in providence, and in the redemption of lost sinners. The one who has unflinching holiness, where it says in Exodus, who will by no means uh, clear the guilty. That's who God is. Sinners frequently think of God as flexible. So he will by no means punish good and wonderful people. That's what they think. Not realizing that the God of creation is their creator, and he is a holy and he is a righteous judge. That God is morally perfect and pure and set apart from all other things. As it says in Habakkuk, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. See, God is holy and he hates all sin. God hates sin with an absolute hatred and therefore he must punish all sin. Every sin, every sin constitutes an open rebellion against God's authority and therefore is it an abomination to him and must be judged by God. So God is angry against all unrighteousness. He says, I hate all who do iniquity. He says in Scripture and Psalms, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. God 
is against those, and he will hold them responsible. So love is a characteristic of God most people are familiar with. And because of this, there is an absence of a proper view of God. Some think that God is so full of love that he will overlook all sin. Some conclude that because there is little evidence of divine judgment on sin and evildoers, they presume it does not exist. They come up with things about God according to their own way of thinking, and they don't check the revelation that God gave concerning himself found in the infallible, inerrant word of God. So you see, when part of a truth is taken as a whole truth, It becomes a lie. And this is the greatest deception of Satan. See, wrath is not a characteristic of God most people are familiar with. So, in other words, the rescuer must make them aware of it. Show them in the word of God that God definitely is a God will hold people responsible for their sin. So we must tell them that God is angry with sin and the sword of his wrath already hangs over their guilty heads unless they repent of their sins and trust Jesus Christ alone to save them from his wrath. If not, they will forever experience the wrath and eternal torment. That is a frightening thought. See, that is what the rescuer fears. He understands, I don't know about you if you ever had these moments where you think about hell and the implications of that. If I've never had any more frightening thoughts than that, to know that a loved one or someone you were close to, they could have been religious, they could have been nice people, but they did not have Christ. We don't want to conclude where they're they're at. But Scripture does conclude for us because we're not brave enough to do it. And we wouldn't come to this conclusion anyway. That if somebody is without Christ, the only thing that they're heading for is eternal torment. That brings me to a third thing the rescuer is to do. Notice back in verse 23, It says, on some have mercy with fear, and then notice, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So we tend to look on things we hate with carefulness. And here it's speaking of their personal righteousness. That means that all that they really have to offer God is nothing but filthy and soiled garments. Hating the garment polluted by the flesh. Remember, this is a picture of sin. This is a picture of being under the judgment of sin. This is a picture that if God doesn't rescue them, they cannot rescue themselves. Do you know that every time you and me put on clothes, it should remind us of our sin before a holy God. 
Because sin, really clothing and sin are very closely linked. Remember, Adam and Eve in the garden were naked before sin, and then after sin they had to clothe themselves. Why did they have to clothe themselves? Because they rebelled against God. So every time we put on clothes, it should think, we should think of that. Our sin has made us unrighteous and unfit for the presence of God. It has, been, it has actually has been estimated that if a person lives to 70 years old, they will have spent five years dressing. So that means you have an ample amount of lessons concerning your own sin. And compared to that, or in contrast to that, you'll spend about a year and a half in church. So that's why I had the passage read this morning in Zechariah chapter 3. Because in that passage of Scripture, some very interesting things are going on. So I'd like you to turn there very quickly. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and onward. I just want to highlight something of what's going on here because this is a good picture of our presence standing before a holy God. And while you're turning there, in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah is giving us a picture of Joshua the high priest who was going into the most holy place before the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, he was coming into the presence of the Lord. And the priest was to go into the presence of God in holiness. But here, Joshua stands with filthy clothing. Notice verse number 3 of Zechariah. Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments, standing before the angel. Now we know that the angel of the Lord here, according to theologians, would be that the, this would be the Lord, a pre-incarnate coronation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's only one thing to save Joshua now, and that, he, that means he needs new clothes. But the best Joshua could provide for himself were filthy garments. He stood before God helpless, condemned before the angel of the Lord. He needs someone else to step up and provide him some clean clothing. And remember, just to think about filthy clothes as here, it represents sin, not only the sin of Joshua, but the sin of the people of Israel in this passage. And the Hebrew term actually means to be befouled or excrement. Just as Isaiah the prophet has explained to us already in the passage that we use very often in evangelism, it says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, And all our righteous deeds are as what? Filthy garments. So this is all any of us have ever offered God or ever could offer God. Filthy clothing soiled with our sin. So the priest and the people had soiled garments beyond compare. So here's a picture in this text of the great grace of God. A person standing with filthy garments before God. He could not dress himself with clean clothes. Satan is there accusing him 
of his unrighteousness and guilt before God. And if you look at verse number one of Zechariah 3, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Satan is there accusing the brethren. This person deserves to die. No one could deliver him. But then what happens in verse number two? The Lord comes to Joshua's defense. It says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? God's rescuing. That's what he's doing. He's rescuing this one from the fire. And then he says, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. This is a message for God's people. And then we see in verse number two that the Lord delivers from condemnation and saves his children by saying this is a brand plucked from the fire. In other words, God saves us as burning sticks snatched from the fire before the fire ultimately consumes the person. So God is able to give unmerited favor to someone that the sinner receives by the grace of God clean clothes as a gift. Verse number four of Zechariah three, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him saying, remove his filthy garments. And then in verse number four, and he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festival robes. This is God's, God's grace is greater than all our guilt. So what does the Lord do? He gives them clean clothes. He gives Joshua clean clothes. The angel takes away Joshua's filthy clothes. And what's to be taken away? Joshua's sin. Stripping away Joshua's own unrighteousness and then giving him the rich garments of spiritual purity. That the garments are taken away and replaced with pure, clean ones. Nothing like putting on clean clothes especially when you were in the mud or sweating all day or sticky. You go take a shower and you put on clean clothes. There's nothing like that feeling. And that's what's going on here, from filthy garments to rich robes. That's what God does for us. So God is able to cover him in the perfect high priestly righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why it says in verse 5 of chapter 3 of Zechariah, then he says, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So in other words, you should remember what it, it said on the front of the high priest's turban, holy to the Lord. So here is a picture of God's justifying grace to the sinner. They say, what does that have to do with you? Well, it has to do with understanding that if somebody is left with dirty garments on, they're left in their sin. They're left under God's judgment. So, in other words, what do these people need? The false apostate teachers tell people that Jesus wants to provide them with happiness and to solve all their problems. Instead, they must be given the message of sin 
and righteousness and judgment with the command to repent and flee from the wrath to come. See, the gospel is a promise of righteousness. It is not a promise of happiness. Even though the Christian life will bring you joy. The gospel is not just for people with ruined lives. The gospel is for people whose lives are going quite well, but without Christ. So what do these people need in this third group in Jude? Who are caught in the grip of false teaching and the practice of the sin of false teachers? These people need the gospel. That's what they need. The rescuer needs not forget apostolic doctrine and the power of the gospel and the cross of Christ. They need to be saved through faith in Christ. As I said a few weeks ago, they need to make an appeal to God for clean clothes. They need to come to grips with their own personal sin. We've been looking at in Sunday school with the Romans road. The Romans road is a great way to witness to people. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then to take into account God's one remedy for sin, Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. See, that is the message. And then to wholeheartedly submit to those terms through repentance and faith, repentance towards God the Father and faith in Jesus Christ. And then encourage them to go on to live a Life of repentance and holiness and godliness and fruit-bearing. It is true that the church must maintain purity of doctrine and building up Christians to know truth from error. However, the church can never forget where they have been rescued from. We can never forget If we forget where we have been rescued from, we will be their judges and not a merciful rescuer. We will become judges who desire to throw people out of the church and keep people from the church. While purity issues are not to be ignored, the main point is not kick these folks out and keep yourselves pure but rescue as many as you can. But take care, for they have a contagious disease that if you're not careful, it's going to pull you in too. So the church, if the church wants to thrive in whatever day the church exists, If they want to thrive, if we want to thrive in the midst of apostasy, and the apostasy is not going away, the false teaching is not going away, the wind of doctrine everywhere is not going away, we must have a heart of Jesus for the lost. That is what Jude is getting at. Have a heart, the heart of Jesus for the lost. And if we do, then we'll carry out the threefold responsibility towards others. 
And that, in the first group, the sincere doubter, we will rescue them from their fence-straddling by using the Word of God to dispel their doubts. The second group, the endangered, naive professor, will rescue them from their wandering away from the truth or their mere profession of faith, short of saving faith, by using the Word of God to pull them back from the edge of hell so that they will be prepared for the final judgment. And they'll be looking for the mercy of God like other believers and not the wrath of God. And then the third group, this confirmed practicing sinner, is rescued very carefully from their self-righteousness and their enslaving sin by using the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring eternal life to those who have not yet received it. So in the process of fighting For God's truth, we are to show compassion on those who deserve it. And if necessary, to pull others out of the fires of apostasy with great fear of personal defilement. See, that is the responsibility that we have at the end of Jude. So if we're to keep ourselves in the love of God, we will develop a sense of responsibility, of urgency, and of passion for lost souls. Do we have that? If we don't have it, we need to pray that we have it and get it and be really concerned about people around us. And not only that, be prepared on how to give the gospel. Where are those verses in my Bible that I can point people to? Where are those verses in my heart that I can bring up to them when I don't have my Bible around? But it's got to be the attitude of mercy. It can't be the attitude of a judge or somebody who's going to bring condemnation. God's word will bring the condemnation, not you. You're just the messenger. And if you're faithful to the messenger, God will take care of the rest. He saved you, didn't didn't he? He saved me. So don't ever think that there's someone around you that you think in your mind, God can will never save that person. Because I thought that. And God saved the person. <laughs> and he does it all the time. He does it all the time. So we have to realize how unlimited God is in whom he draws to himself. He draws wicked, evil people to himself with all their filthy, dirty garments, and he cleanses them as they receive the gospel, and he establishes them, and he shows mercy to them, and that's what we're expecting. When we get to heaven, we're not going to receive God's wrath. In the end, we're going to receive God's God's mercy, his compassion toward us, right? Because he's taking care of everything. He's done it for us. So the gospel is not what I do. The gospel is what God has done for me. That's the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning. Lord, and if you discern someone, Holy Spirit, that does not know you, has not come and confessed you as Lord and Savior yet, please, Lord, today, today do that. Convict them of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And Lord, please bring them to yourself. And, Lord, as far as we're concerned, Lord, let us be responsible Christians that take this responsibility serious 
Give us that passion for souls that every day are slipping off into a lost eternity. Lord, let us be the mouthpieces for you. Let us be the feet for you. Let us move toward them, not walk around them. Lord, let us be somebody who actually not only sees with compassion in our heart, but does something about it. Make us those kind of people for the sake of your great name and bringing in your harvest of souls. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.